This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. When this look back at the first 100 episodes started, I envisioned an episode or two. But once I started pulling out highlights from the first 100 episodes, I realized that wasn't enough space. Since I wanted these episodes to be a way to get back and start listening stuff in the early years, I didn't see a good reason to keep the retrospective short, and so here we are. That said, I think this will be the last in the series. Many of you got on board when I interviewed the Flaming Lips Stephen Drozd, so I figure episodes from around that time make a good stopping place. The Drozd interview was one that was months in the offing as I pitched and got maybe and maybe and maybe until suddenly it became yes. He likes the idea and then he'll text you. After that point, I didn't deal with intermediaries or handlers. Stephen Draws texted me. He made the Zoom call for the interview and it was easy with his time. If he had a limit, he never told me. I was glad to get that interview because Wayne Coyne does most of the Flaming Lips press, but since Draws is a big part of the band's music, he's the voice I wanted to hear from, particularly in a conversation about Christmas music, and in particular, the record that came out under the name Imogene Peace or Imagine Peace, titled Atlas Eats Christmas, which is sort of a play on At Last It's Christmas. Anyway, they made that album we talked about. Are there any artists or albums or sort of bodies of music that you put on in your house now uh, during the holiday season? We always do the Vince Guaraldi Peanuts Christmas record. We always do that. Um, what else do we do usually? We had the, this sounds kind of uh, egotistical, but we had the Imagine Peace Christmas record. We put that on a lot. And then the rest of it is just, you know, I, I do have, I have the old Elvis vinyl, on, uh, Christmas record on vinyl. I've got a uh, Dolly Parton vinyl thing christmas music a hodgepodge of stuff but the main thing is the vince garaldi and then i'll just make a playlist on my computer or itunes or whatever and that's just all over the place so did vince garaldi have um any influence over uh imagine peace well yeah um 110 it's it's um you know that the, this whole thing started when uh, you know, hearing that when I was growing up, and a lot of his music is really complex. It's complicated. You know, it's harmonically very interesting and stuff. And as I started to learn more about music, I started to study his music and try to glean what I could from his stuff. You know, so by the time I get in my early twenties, I'm learning like major ninth chords and you know, uh, thirteen sharp eleven chords and stuff like that. And then I would take Christmas songs that I knew and try to kind of reharmonize them in a Vince Guaraldi style, and then 
years later, I'm doing that and it became something I would do every year. And uh, Wayne at one point was like, man, you should just make a record of that stuff, you know, like rearrange all these Christmas songs that you love, put some weird instrumentation and we'll give it a story. And, and that's kind of how it happened. But I would, I would say that really does stem from my love of Vince Garaldi and how much he's just seared into my brain, you know, just the mood of it. It's just got such a delicate, nice mood to it. You know? Yeah. So the Imagine piece, so that those started off as just, things you were doing for yourself yeah i would you know every uh, every year around christmas time uh i would start getting into my christmas music and i my project every year is i, I try to reharmonize like a christmas song that i love so the first time i ever did this i was like 21 and i did uh white christmas i reharmonized white christmas the version on the imagined piece is not what that was but um and then a couple years later i reharmonized a uh, little drummer boy in a weird way kind of like what vince Garoldi does with vince little drummer boy he's got the moving harmonies underneath it <laughs> I would, I would, I would just do that on my own for fun. And, you know, I'd have Christmas parties and people would come over and a couple of times Wayne just would be like, cause Wayne has to, he has to do stuff. He can't just talk about stuff. You know, I can talk about stuff. <laughs> I can just keep talking about stuff endlessly and never do anything about it. But what, that's not how Wayne works. So he's like, you should just, you know, do something. And I can record at home. So do something in your house and, and put some, you know, other instrumentation though. So it's not just piano. And we kind of arrived at this kind of vaguely, you know, vaguely Indian, some Middle Eastern vibe to it, you know, whatever you want to call that. And then he came up with that whole story of the woman who uh, committed suicide, but her recordings were unearthed from the night, early 1970s in Iraq, you know? So, <laughs> um, yeah. So he put that, he put the story together and kind of the imagery, but yeah, I've been, I've been doing that thing for many years before I actually started to sit down and record those things. So it was a long time coming. There are a few episodes I did just for me. I figured they would have things that listeners would enjoy, but I took them on for personal reasons. One was with the duo of Thomas Foyer, I think, and Neil Pauley, who record under the name 11 Acorn Lane. Their 2010 Christmas album, Happy Holy Days, didn't get the attention it deserves, but has been a staple of my Christmas playlists and their effort to update lounge music for a world changed by DJs is right up my alley. I was blown away when they talked about how they made the album with arrangements inspired by the Mexican composer, arranger, and band leader Esquivel. Did we do Jingle Bells first? We just said, let's, let's do one song. Yep. Just to fool around. And then in between other songs that we did, 
we did another one. And then at the end, we're like, all right, this is going to be an album. And then we worked really, really hard right the summer before that Christmas, which was really weird because you, you end up making Christmas music in the summer and everybody does that because everybody's release date is going to be sometime in October or November. And you've got to have the music ready by August, the latest. So I remember June and July, we were going at it like crazy to finish this. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an interesting experience. I wonder what the neighbors were thinking. These we, had to sw- we would have to switch the AC off every time we recorded something, remember? Yes. <laughs> so we were sweating in that room. Oh, my was, God. My apartment's to- right under the roof in, in a Manhattan building. So you've got the probably black rooftop and very thin walls and roofs and stuff. And it was unbelievably hot. So we're recording Christmas music in like 100 degree weather. And... Uh, <laughs> and, and and we're sweating it because we it was a lot of like acoustical guitar parts that that needed to it needed to be absolutely quiet you, you could you could hear the refrigerator uh-huh. <laughs> so turn everything off yes <laughs> that was an yeah. experience yeah oh, that's a good point i forgot that about that we did that in the summer yeah, yeah. I, I was huh. when you started to tell me the story i was thinking that you know i live in new orleans and as hot as new orleans is that I've been more miserable in New York in summertime because at least here you can go inside and have air conditioning that, you know, and you can cool off. But, you know, in a lot of, in you know, New York, you know, a lot of places don't have air conditioning at all, or it is like, you know, a window unit in a room. That oh, never, that's, that, that's what you got. Yeah. Window units. That's the worst. We obviously we had a window unit, you know, this was a small, one bedroom, one room just uh, was a studio entirely. And in, in, in that room, I had a window air conditioner in the whole building. Everybody only had window air conditioners. So I still had, have it. that I was, that was so loud. And, and obviously it's, it's too loud to even, I mean, you record anything for that matter, too loud to almost listen, just to listen back to it. So it was, we had to turn it off a lot. And there's, you, you don't get any airflow. It's super humid in the, in the summer there. That was yeah, we we that was a lot. It's a lot of sweat in this in this record. <laughs> a lot of blood and sweat. How did you yes. How did you land on the arrangement that you chose? That is still a mystery to us, isn't it, Neil? You know, not only the Christmas record, but other stuff we've done. Now listening back to them, I I I'm like, how did we do that? But it, it's they it just. Um, I don't know. How did we do it? I think Jingle Bells, we did like like we did many things, which is just like go bit by bit. We didn't have like a, a, like an, a, an overview of the whole thing. We did for some um, arrangements, I remember. I forgot. It's Hark the Heralds. We said like, uh, we're going to do the form three times. And in, in the middle, it's going to be like a classical counterpoint kind of section. And in the beginning, this. So we had like a, a rough outline and we would even maybe write a few things down. But in general, very few of these arrangements are even written. We would we would just basically, uh, maybe Neil would start. I, I think that's a good starting point. Neil would start with the guitar laying down a track for like a verse. And so we have the harmony and, and the rhythm there. And then we start overdubbing and the guitar might go away again at the end. Once we realize we have all these things now, we the guitar may not stay. It's basically just like a, like a, a little outline that helps us 
like a, a, what is scaffolding or something to hold on to. <laughs> and then you remove that once the, the track stands on its own. And then we would just, and we did this all, uh, like nowadays too, we do it mostly by ear. We just, we play all these instruments and we kind of arrange as we play, which has the benefit that we, we only write for us what we can play. Like I'm always thinking, you know, it it ends up sounding like a, a bigger orchestra, and yet in a big orchestra, you have all these guys come in and they have to play whatever parts you put in front of them. We we make up our own parts, and so let's say the piccolo parts are never going to be that complicated because I'm not that great of a piccolo player. <laughs> but for <laughs> for sax, we could write, you know, something a little more intricate, and so it's kind of like totally tailored to to us. We we making the best out of the the instruments that that we play. Hmm. And then it it, it 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 comes down to uh, we get lost. We like we we have. I, I listen to it now, and you go like, you uh, you could not write. I don't I don't know. I guess you could write this down, but we didn't write it down. And it was just like, oh, Neil would go like, oh, let me add this. I hear like a French horn there, or I I want to do a little cornet uh, section just for like an answer of like five notes, like and then do that with four cornets and and put that in there and they're not going to come back. And that's a luxury that uh, very few arrangers have to be able to just pull out a section and then and have them on your recording session and, and not use them for anything else. Because you, you would have to hire a, a bunch of guys. And here it's just us recording us ourselves many times over and we, we can do limitless, limitless little ca- cameo appearances of instruments that we don't have to hire. You know, one thing I remember on Jingle Bells is I remember one time you turned around and you said, check this out. And it's that it's that part where it goes, um, you know, laughing all the way. That's the line. But you did it on a percussion instrument and it was just like, shink, ding, boom, and everything was like a different, everything was like a different percussion. And you just came up with, you. I remember you spinning around and said, check this out. And I, I was, I sat there for like 20 minutes and then we put that together, and it's like it was the greatest part, I think, in the film. Because you, you can hear the melody, even though there's no melody. You actually, your, your ear puts the melody in uh, because of the percussion. It's yes. just uh, it's yes. genius. That, but that that is such an Esquivel thing to do. I, yes. I wouldn't be surprised if 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 he did that somewhere, and we we subconsciously had it. You know what I mean? Like. It's just that's to me that's that's what 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 Esquivel is all about. also interviewed Michael Zilka, the Z in Z Records, for personal reasons. The New York-based label launched in 1978 had a lot to do with the way I think about music as it pulled together artists as different as John Cale, Suicide, Kid Creole and the Coconuts, The Waitresses, Lydia Lunch, and Was Not Was. The music was all intelligent, and the artists took their music seriously. 
and the label's dalliance with dance music helped to rehab disco as a musical idea. I could go on about Z, but in 1981, when it released a Christmas record, I thought Christmas music was kid stuff, and I wasn't interested in it. But hearing an album of Christmas songs by artists I like, made for people like me, started my reconsideration of Christmas music. In retrospect, it's also one of the first Christmas albums I can think of in the 1970s and 80s made for listeners who liked contemporary music. Punk band The Dickies recorded Silent Night on a single in 1978, but thinking quickly, I can't come up with much else. When I talked to Michael, we talked about Christina, an important part of the Z roster, and her Things Fall Apart was one of my favorite songs on a Christmas album, with its tale of celebutante love in the Chelsea Hotel. Unfortunately, Christina was an early casualty of COVID-19, so I was glad we got a little time to pay attention to her role with the label. My boyfriend said it's really sweet the way you go for Christmas cheer. I said we can't afford the tree. He said love is free. So we trimmed the cactus with my earrings that we'd meant to pawn. There wasn't any snow, but there was rain. He licked me like a candy cane. And then one day he said, I can't stand in your way. It's wrong. Way of what, I asked, but he was gone. The second version is slightly different from the first version because was not was, D David was had written about half the lyrics on um, Things Fall Apart. And the first version ended, um, uh, I, I went back home alone again alone. And Christina decided that was really too sentimental. And so it... Um, it was, I went back to my flat and wept a bit and fed the cat, which is right. much better. <laughs> if you're totally intense and sincere, people will buy into it more. But actually, I think my records talk just as much about what, you know, the human condition was as theirs did. I mean... Transmission or Love Will Tear Us Apart are heartbreaking records, but they're not nearly as great as Ballad of, uh, Ballad of a Thin Man, which is a song that has wit. I mean, that whole album has so much sort of wit and playfulness, and that, to me, makes for a greater record. Right. So I'm not saying that any of my artists, you know, were that remarkable. But, and I've never actually thought about this before right now, but I, I think, I think that's the difference. So um, I called my Z perspective compilation laughing in the face of adversity. Was it laughing or dancing in the face of adversity? I think, it may have been dancing in the face of that adversity, but it, but it could have been laughing in the face of adversity. And the second Was Not Was album was born to laugh at tornadoes. So, you know, there was that sense that let's, let's not just be 
miserable and, you know, talk about everything that's awful in the world. And, and you know, those records can be some of the greatest records ever. Like, the, there's a reason that The Message is the greatest rap record ever made. It's because it's about something. Right. And it's viewed from the inside. But when I would try to get August to write protest songs, because I was always trying to get people to write protest songs, but... Um, with their aesthetic, you know, you got no fish today, which was, um, uh, you know, uh, basically what it was, you know, a, a song about sort of fishermen who, you know, there's just no food today. And so right. it, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't visceral. Right. Right. Yes. It's, um, it, it's tangential. Right. And so I think all of those Z bands that, there was so much irony in the records. And I think that that's what you were alluding to. And it is difficult to move beyond the novelty record when you're using irony. I actually have to tell you, I interviewed, uh, I've interviewed both Chris Butler and Mars Williams uh, from Waitresses, both about this separately. And, And Chris was saying that, you know, when you asked, it was like, okay, I'm in. But it wasn't it wasn't an idea that seemed automatically a good idea to him. Did you have it? Did you when you heard it? Did you have a sense this could this had potentially longer legs than other tracks on the record? I thought it was fabulous. I actually, I actually thought things fall apart was. Um, Sonically was the most interesting record. I you know, I loved every track. There wasn't one track I didn't love, and I loved them all for different reasons. Good morning, midnight. It's Christmas. One byproduct of COVID for me was that musicians were more willing to use something other than a phone for interviews. Before COVID, I would try to get my guests on Skype for better audio than I could get by phone, but many didn't want to bother when they were already so comfortable with their phones. I had to salvage a few good interviews because they sounded terrible recorded through the phone and went with the few that, in retrospect, I wish I wouldn't have because they simply don't sound very good at all. COVID taught the world to Zoom, and while a few people did interviews with the picture off, most agreed to Zoom with picture on, and the interview was in every way better for it. In the case of jazz singer Jackie Naylor, she not only participated, but she had a whole setup in place because she was doing live stream shows from her house in 2020. That made for an easy, com- that made for an easy conversation as we talked about her Christmas album from 2007, smashed for the holidays. 
She made her reputation making what she calls smash-ups. Not exactly mash-ups, but she pairs lyrics to one song with music from another. We talked about that process for her Christmas album, and particularly why she smashed Christmas lyrics with songs by arena rock bands. I have to say that although as many people point at Harry Connick Jr.'s first Christmas album, uh, you know, when he was in his most in his sort of, you know, Sinatra mode, he, he did one probably about five or six years ago that really made me appreciate him as an arranger. And yeah. that there is just such an incredibly smart, unpredictable version of Holly Jolly Christmas, mm. uh, and that has that that finds a way to get around the silliness of the title, and gives it a solid musical gravity, a real strong percussive motor, and I just walked away from this thinking about what a remarkable arranger he was for figuring out such inventive things to do with these music with these songs and things that were inventive and smart for him as well as a musician. And, you know, and again, from a musician's perspective, I, I, like, what do you hear in these songs and what do they offer what, or why are they so plastic, so open to possibility? I think part of it is that, you know, this, if, if you're talking about these songs like that so many of us know, okay, uh, you know, even if we don't think we know them, we know them. Even if we didn't grow up with them, we know them, right? Um, they're good songs. They're good. So- most of them are good, solid, well-crafted, beautiful tunes and i think the the element about them musically is that they feel nostalgic like sometimes we will do a song or I'll, or, or or i'll write a song that's not a holiday song but it has a holiday feel moon river mm-hmm. moon river has this nostalgia about it that's so like my favorite song moon river you know that I feel like if I sing it just right, it feels a little like a Christmas tune. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, in a, in a weird way, this is a very interesting conversation because in a strange way, I think I'm always trying to make every song into a holiday song. Oh, what I'm a trying great to, I'm trying to get that, I'm trying to evoke that feeling and heart with people, that connection with people, that shared experience that, we feel around the holidays, you know, or around Christmas songs or holiday music that brings us together, brings us closer, you know? And so these extremely well-known songs, because you don't have to explain the song anymore. Everybody knows the tune. You can really just focus on, well, what, am, what, what how can I bring, how can I connect with somebody in this song? How can this become a shared experience? So maybe I'm always playing Christmas music. <laughs> I, just, I just didn't know it. Oh, that's great. It, it, it feels like you, you went a long way to connect Christmas music with arena rock. 
and I was wondering if there was a relationship in there or 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 why kind of you made these really you know sort of especially especially with with Zeppelin and and uh Leonard Skinner why you're connecting this sort of big rock with Christmas songs I think it's more that when we do that smashing thing arranging using that tool I'll say it is um I feel like the more different they are the better uh the more well known they are the better and the more different they are the better so if you you know the litmus test being well if you know one of the tunes or both of the tunes or none of the tunes it should still be enjoyable <laughs> you know right. that's the goal so i think that there's that um and kind of i mean that doing smash for the holidays certainly allowed us to do that in a more do that even with more fun consequences i guess that's the way to say it um and so indeed those are really those are really different but but you know it's funny right when you talk about, you use that word anthemic i mean so many when we talk about nostalgic well-known christmas tunes we're talking about holiday anthems I mean, that's what those are, right? So why not put a holiday anthem with a big arena rock anthem? Yeah. Uh, like, those are very similar in yeah. some ways. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Uh, you just said something I really wanted to pick up on because I was going to ask you about this. You just said that one of the things that's, that's important is that, people, is that, is that the, the songs or the song you're smashing with is well-known. And, and I have thoughts about this, but, but why is it important from your perspective? Well, first of all, because the one of the reasons, as I mentioned, I think for doing that, 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 that technique of arranging for us came about was because I wanted to address these very well-known songs, meaning the melody and the lyrics of the tune that I'm singing, wanted to address those tunes in a new way. And, under the best circumstances, try and connect people maybe with those songs who wouldn't normally hear that song. So while that may not be true in the holiday case, um, you know, there's a lot of other tunes that we do in that, in that way. So this idea of picking tunes that are both well-known from different genres and putting them together invites both listener, the listener of both those tunes who may know one or both of those tunes to kind of may actually introduce them into a song or to a genre that they didn't previously know. Uh, and then the other piece of that is that, quite frankly, you know, the, it's that the, it's the, it's the driving baseline a lot of the times from the other tune that I'm not singing that is the well-known piece of the tune that people identify with. So the groove of the tune, you hear that groove or you hear that, you know, uh, or you hear that lick and, and you instantly know what it is. Even if you don't hear, even, even, if, even if I'm not singing the melody of that song. So, so there's, so the better known that is, I mean, we as musicians, we might hear things uh, more subtle, you know, for, 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 for instance, on, 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 on the long game, we've got a, a more subtle smash that's a ballad, two ballads. Now, it, it, it never entered my mind in Fix You, 
only some people are going to know what we're doing. Whereas when we're talking about using two very well-known tunes, most people can grasp what we're doing and hear what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of the answer. Yeah. I'll tell you where I was coming from and I was asking, thinking about the question is I've always thought part of the po- almost part of the point of a cover is that the, the audience needs to know it because then the audience can think about what you've just done. And so like if you cover side, you know, you know, track three, side two, people may not know what that song is. And so, you know, an obscure REM song, you, you may do a beautiful job of it. You may do an amazing transformation of it. And who knows? Whereas if you take a, take a well-known song, people can appreciate what you bring to the table. Absolutely. And, and I would imagine in the case of smashing, especially smashing smashing up Arena Rock and Christmas, it in, it invites you to think about what's the relationship here? How does, you know, how how are the pieces in conversation? And how are the elements in conversation in addition to just, you know, cueing people in? That's absolutely right. And I think in those cases, you know, the, the smashing element as opposed to simply covering a tune, right? Um, I don't mean simply, that's not always easy, but um, is that, you know, one of the important things for us, we came up with all these rules, or, or I don't know, maybe I came up with all these rules for smashing, but, you know, they should really be able to pl- play that song. You know, we're not looping, we're not picking spots, we're not quoting. They, we are really referencing, you know, they are playing that song. Uh, the band is playing that tune. So this whole concept that, wow, you know, some people who really hear what we're doing are like, wow, those are the same chords. Like, that's the same chord structure. I mean, they're vastly reharmonized, so don't get me wrong. You know, this is a... But, but, but that's why they work together. And then, like, that's so interesting to me, you know, that a tune from the 70s and a tune from the 40s have the same chord structure. Like, that's a trip. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of cool, just in and of itself. So people that want to delve deeper into it on that, you know, level do, you know. Um, But I think you're absolutely right about covers. I mean, and I've been there. I've been to that. (laughs) I've been there where I've gone, wow, this is a beautiful tune. I love this really obscure tune actually that's really funny because maybe it was a tom petty song that's really funny um and i saw something so crafted and sing it live and it's just kind of like people don't really know the tune you know it was kind of a deep cover you know and it's a little too under a little too deep of a cover (laughs) under it was undercover (laughs) and they're like oh that was interesting like they thought i did did i write it or what was it or you know it's like okay that didn't really work
one gem of an interview is with guitarist Steve Lukather, known for his work with Toto and a ton of sessions. He has a reputation for being a wild guy, and there was some of that when we talked about his 2003 Christmas album, Sentimental. In our conversation, he got emotional while talking about his friendship with Ringo Starr, his admiration for Sammy Davis Jr., and recording with Eddie Van Halen, who died a month or so before we talked in 2020. have Eddie Van Halen with you to play Joy to the World. So first off, yeah. So what can you tell me about the memory of, of, uh, of recording that? Well, I mean, you know, I said I, w- I wanted to do like a, a hot for teacher version of the song. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you call but Ghostbusters, you know what I mean? And, you know, Ed and I, God rest his soul, and it's torn me up beyond words, and I don't want to get all weepy and stuff, but, you know, 40-plus years, every day, you know? Every day I love him and I miss him, and God bless the whole family. Anyway, my buddy at the time, I said, said, Ed, come down here. This has been, come down here and blow a solo on this. Me and you will go back and forth. And he, and... He goes, Lou, come on, really? And I go, yeah, man, come on down and do it. We'll just, I'll get you in and out. And he did that. He came down and did that as a gift for me. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, how do you get Ed Van Halen out of the house? I mean, he did it out of love. And I love the man like blood, you know? So that was a gift, you know what I mean? And, and we just had fun with it. I mean, it was a goofy little record. We weren't trying to be like, oh, wow, it's a guitar duo. I mean, I would lose. I mean, come on, he's the greatest of all time against me. But um, we were just buds, man. He did, it was it was done out of love and it was a favor, you know what I mean? And I, you know, like I said, we laughed doing it, and it was just me and him in the room. And I just I did the punching, you know. I I, I worked the machine. He only wanted to work with me, just yeah. me and him in a room. So oh, I said, great. okay, you got Elliot. You got to give me this one, man. It's Ed. So Elliot already gotten the sounds and everything up like that. So I I just we just did it and. We cut the track live and I left the space for him. So my friends would come over and overdub in one or two takes and boom, out, done. Right. You know what I mean? That's the whole record. So, I mean, obviously he's just brings, brings just, you know, pure pyrotechnics on the, on those segments and just, you know, it goes crazy. You played with so many great players and have been a part of so many great musical moments. Can you still just go musical fanboy and just like watch a guy burn it down like he does absolutely are you kidding me i'm still the biggest fan of everybody i keep little the photos i keep of people that i've worked with and played them they're little polaroids or little things i keep them in my office in little hidden places like there's a picture of wayne shorter and me with his arm around me smiling and i'm looking at him a picture of Jeff Beck and I drinking a, a bottle of wine or something like that in my hotel room. Stuff that I would never share on the internet that I would, that are personal treasures to me. I, those things mean something to me and, and I, I would never use it to gain press to go, Hey, dig me. I'm just not that guy. Sure. There was a time when I was in ex, excess, 
it was everything to me. I was loud and boisterous and drunk and being an idiot. And I just look back at myself and go, I was a kid that needed a spanking. Yeah. Somebody slapped me in the face and say, stop saying stupid shit. I'm learning the hard way. And unfortunately, thanks to the internet, it lives forever. <laughs> to uh, the singer Rosemary Clooney who herself has made a lot of great Christmas music I d- oh you kidding me we spent 20 Christmases together and on Christmas Eve the tra- tradition was to uh, go to Rosie's house and uh, Michael Feinstein would, would uh, sit behind the piano and she would sing White Christmas and we would hang because her son Miguel Ferrer was my best friend God rest his soul and that's how I met George, and that's how my affiliation with the whole family came into play, which still exists. And I wish all the Clooney's and the Ferrer's a wonderful Christmas. I know a bunch of phone calls, but I think we're all kind of in hiding thanks to COVID, you know? Yeah. You also, on the record, you play with with uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Same as Sammy Davis Jr. Well, I didn't play with Sam. I got permission from uh, Alta V's his wife to, to sample his voice and do a, a parody. It's not a parody, but it is a parody. A send up where I actually, the guitar is a little out of tune in the song. <laughs> like it was really kitschy. You know what I mean? I was going like, sure. You know, cause I, I, we used to do everybody in LA used to do Sammy Davis junior impressions. You dig man. And all that stuff, because we thought Sammy was the coolest guy in the world at the time. We were totally Sammy. And I thought, wouldn't it be incredible? And my then manager uh, made that happen. And uh, we, uh, we had a laugh and yet we, you know, I did the thing, you know, it, it's, it's really funny to listen to it now. And it only gets listened to during like a few weeks, a week, a uh, year, but that's, you know, it, it makes me smile. And I love Sammy Davis Jr. I'm not making fun of him at all. Are you kidding me? He's one of the most talented people that ever stepped foot on earth. I, re- I revere the man, but it was a little kitschy take on it, that's all.
I learned about the existence of Bakersfield, California's Latin ska band Mento Buru when they released a Christmas EP, East Bakersfield Christmas, in 2020. Singer Matt Munoz and I talked about the band's history and the challenge of what to do with Feliz Navidad, the best-known and most inescapable Spanish-language Christmas song in America. He had another song with Hispanic roots that has become his obsession. What are your memories of Christmas music as a kid? My most fondest memories, earliest memories of Christmas music is my mother had this album, which was the Ramsey Lewis Sounds of Christmas. And every Christmas Eve, (laughs) she put that record on and she must have bought it when it first came out. So by the time I was growing up, it had all the pops and the hisses. (laughs) And then you just hear that that cool, you know, Ramsey Lewis, Sounds of Christmas, the volume one. And it would just play over and over and over. And uh, I loved it. That was just kind of like the record that would just go flip back and forth, back and forth, you know. His version of Here Comes Santa Claus on that is just a knockout. That is like yeah. exactly what I want from Ramsey Lewis. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. What a what a it's a classic album. I gotta get another copy of it because I there for a while that that record when my parents passed away, the, the album would kind of travel from family member. I have five sisters and one brother, and I'm the youngest. So that record would kind of travel. Someone would come over, I'd go look for it this Christmas. Oh, it's gone. I'd have to call on my siblings. Oh, so and so has it. I'd have to wait for it to come back. I said, I'm not gonna buy another one. I want to hear that one. I want to hear all the pops and the skips in the exact places that I remember growing up. We're not going to fix them. seasons ago i talked with a uh with a a a guy in a local indie rock band joe adrania from a band called the junior league and he Mm -hmm. was talking about there was one album and it was a compilation from grant's department store in new jersey and that that record was the sound of that was christmas dinner that at christmas dinner this record went on you know he knew you know and had like that kind of that kind of like i know where the skips are it's like I know it. every song in the right sequence. And he at one point found a copy and he loved it, but it wasn't his parents' copy. And that when he finally got a chance, yeah. he finally like boosted the parents' version, a uh, copy of the record, because they, you know, it didn't mean as much to them as it did to him. And uh, yeah. so <laughs> it was, uh, so anyway, so. I've had that conversation a few times about how just a, yeah. how important not just that thing was to Christmas, uh, but the how how that specific object 
Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's and then we'd go to midnight mass, then we'd come back, and then it would you know we're, we'd be up to like three, four in the morning, and then the record would just go on over and over and over and over again. You know, I loved it. Oh, yeah. So, so many fond memories, and of course. But the things that I really liked about Christmas music after, you know, when I started getting older was I loved all the novelty songs. I loved the Spike Jones, all the stuff that you grew up, all the Dr. Demento, you know, Cheech and Chong, Santa Claus and his old lady. And, uh, you know, all the Christmas music. I love it. You know, and that was kind of like the, the whole thing with putting this record together. What's your favorite or do you have a favorite? Uh, a favorite Christmas song? No, favorite like, uh, uh, novelty. Not novelty Christmas. Oh, song. favorite novelty. Well, I really like the Don't Stop Santa Claus. You know, the Augie, little Augie Rios. You know, that became a favorite because you know here I am a Latino over here in Southern California. I mean, in uh, Central California, and we, you know, we're so used to to hearing all the American jazz records and all that stuff, and you know, we get to we get to hear a little something. I'm like, is that like is that like a is it Spike Jones impersonating a Latino kid? You know, <laughs> you know, because he was known to impersonate everybody. I was like, no, it's actually like, you know, it's actually a little kid. So that'd be kind of a kind of a, kind of a little bit of a little mild obsession of what what was this song? Where did this song come from? And who was Augie Rios? On the EP, you finish with a with a song sung entirely in Spanish. Yeah. Where did the, mm-hmm. Sp- the all Spanish lyric come from? That came from there's a Mexican comedian by the name of Chabelo. And he was really big. He's still around. I think he's like 81, 82. Um, and he would always show up on those Mexican, crazy Mexican variety shows on the weekends that my parents used to watch. And he's this guy, he's kind of, he's not a dwarf, but he's just kind of like a, he's just a really short, little tiny Mexican man. (laughs) And he's a comedian and he was known for doing these skits with a baby voice. And so he would come out dressed down like, like, uh, like a school, school boy outfit, or, you know, like a onesie, um, pajamas around the holidays. And he had this real kind of like kitty voice. And he was, vamos a hablar en español, you know, donde está Santa Claus? And he did a version of it. And, uh, and I was like, well, I think we should do it. But I want, I need to make sure that the translation is correct. And I said, well, as long as I get his translation verbatim, I'm safe. Because if there's one thing about Latinos, when they hear something sung in Spanish, is there's so many dialects, you're bound to get picked apart. So I was like, well, if you have a problem with my translation, take it out with Chabelo. He's still alive. You can go argue with him. Finally, we'll finish with an episode that had legs for me. Last year was the 30th anniversary of the legendary hip-hop label Death Row Records. I found two people who could talk about its unlikely 1996 Christmas album, Christmas on Death Row. Singer Danny Boy and longtime label rep John J.P. Payne talked about the making of the album, and the story was so larger than life that I pitched it to the New York Times. I'll post a link to that story in the show notes. Unfortunately, 
There were stories that Danny Boy told in the interview that I couldn't corroborate, which doesn't mean they weren't true. But many people involved in the making of the album have died, got out of the game, or didn't want to talk about the death row experience. Still, there are stories he told in consistent ways, and there's little difference between how he told them to me and how he wrote them in his memoir, Stranded on Death Row. I'll put a link to my New York Times story in the show notes, and here are a couple of stories I couldn't use in the article. One note on the sound. Danny Boy did Zoom with JP and me, but he talked to us while he was driving to the airport, checking in for a flight, and going through TSA. At one point, he had to put his phone down while it went through TSA's x-ray machine, which you can't hear except that he suddenly isn't a part of the conversation anymore. If you hear some background noise here, you're hearing the airport. Bells don't jingle no more. White snow don't fall in the ghetto. It seems as if it's the joy that I miss. Scented don't know me no more. And it feels... <laughs> How did the idea of a Christmas album come about? Anyway, well, I remember uh, Suge talking about it, uh, like we were talking about it early on. We were working on other records, and it was just going around. The holidays was coming up. It was going around to do a Christmas record, and I actually remember he and I going to meet with Michael Jackson. Really? So that, uh, yes, um, you know, he had been telling me Suge would always say certain things, like, "Oh man, yeah, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna do that," and it would sound unbelievable until you seen him pull it off. And he's like, yeah, we're going to make sure Mike get on this song, which, and uh, da, 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 da. and I knew that he knew the Jacksons, you know, out of going to meet with them. Uh, but we went to a restaurant and we sat down and we there and lo and behold, Michael Jackson came in. <laughs> and you got this shit, you got Suge smoking this thing, I talking to Mike about cutting this record with me. And I'm sitting there like, you know, Suge had this thing where you really couldn't act like uh, when you seen other celebrities or anything like that. You had to kind of act right. You, had to, you know, you had to, you get you couldn't. Uh, drivers, I'm sorry, I'm walking through security. Sure. You had to act like you had to act like you were on their level. Sure. You had to act like you were on their level. And uh, but I was excited. Who wouldn't have been excited to meet somebody like Michael Jackson? So. After that meeting, it really started going into play, even though a lot of political things started to happen. Pac passed around that time. Um, Pac had just passed around that time. We were in, uh, he decided for us to go to the Bahamas uh, to cut the records to Compass Point. Oh, really? Yeah. So he flew a lot of musicians, uh, a writing team, and Roger Trotman and his brother. We all flew over to Compass Point. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so y'all were so you were so Roger Trotman was a part of the of the album as well. Roger Trotman did. Uh, Roger Trotman cut a lot of the records uh, uh, on some of those Christmas records, and as we were working on Christmas songs, you know, we would do other things. But our common goal down there was to cut the Christmas album. <laughs> do you remember uh, what month this was recorded in? Uh, we were recording somewhere around. Let me see. Pot past and. September, uh, let me see, September, somewhere like September, it was early after Pac's, Pac's death that we decided, you know, with so much going on Okay. that we decided to get away. Okay. And ha- had Suge gone to prison yet? No, actually, while we were recording the records, while we were recording, um, 
I was a uh, I was actually in, a, in at Compass Point. There's like a compound where artists stay on. And uh, I was in the room sleeping. They came and they said that uh, Shook had a warrant out for his arrest uh, back in the states. And probably an hour later, uh, the bah- Bahamian police came and they escorted us off of the island. Wow! Like we, we had to leave immediately. Let her Thanks to all the participants for the time and the talk, and thanks to you for listening. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, or requests, you can reach me through 12 Songs of Christmas on Facebook. If you like this podcast, I hope you'll also check out my non-Christmas writing at my website, myspiltmilk.com. If you haven't already done so, like, follow, subscribe, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. You know the drill. We are wherever you get podcast feed. And if you do that, not only do you make sure you don't miss an episode, but you help make the algorithms work for us. Finally, we heard Mental Buru's version of Donde Esta Santa Claus when I talked to Matt Munoz. Let's finish with the original by his Christmas music obsession, Augie Rios. This is the original version from 1958. I'll be back next week with a new episode. Talk to you then. Mamacita. Sit down.